Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 85th episode, I'll be talking to Michael Francis, writer and contributor to the Atomic Elbow Wrestling Zine, about Star Blazers and other dubbed anime in Australia. Along the way, we discussed the currently fantastic and entirely self-made Australian wrestling scene, why cities with many churches will also have many pubs, and how physics is just something that happens to other people if your name happens to be Lupin. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the map of you. We join this conversation already in progress. For those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? So, my name is Michael Francis, and the thing that's making me a snowflake right now is that it is currently five below zero outside the window of the room I am currently sitting in, which is the floor of my daughter's bedroom. So, I'm surrounded by a pink bed and a Barbie castle. <laughs> yes, it's extremely cold in Australia, listeners, for those of you who aren't here. And the entire back of my house is made of glass, uh, thanks to French doors. So, we've been kind of blasting the heater and wrapping our baby in very heavy blankets. I'm sitting here in like a grandpa cardigan and like some flannel pajamas and slippers but it is not as cold as where you are no it's actually got a five below my god yeah it was minus 8.6 about this time yesterday morning when i was leaving for work so by the time i defrosted the windscreen and walked back to the house to get my bag the windscreen had frozen again (laughs) i am wearing some fingerless gloves my chikara wrestle factory hoodie and i am on my daughter's beanbag and under my son's doona so yeah (laughs) i'm just living that uh, that casual life and, yeah, I know, every North American listener right now is going, oh, suck it up, guys. Hey, hey, we live in Australia. There's no insulation in the houses. <laughs> so, Michael, I mean, people around the internet would probably know you mostly for wrestling content, right? Yeah, I've been writing for Atomic Elbow, the world's second best wrestling fanzine, for, I was trying to whip this out last night, I want to say maybe four years now, doing, you know, varying show coverage, retrospective interview and nostalgia pieces for uh, the good friends at Atomic Elbow. And yeah, that's how you and I met. You were talking to me about some of the, I think it was the WSW show the last time, which... It was, yes. It was the the first tour. Yeah, funnily enough, it's actually, they're coming back on Monday to Sydney, and I'll be going to that Mm. Monday in Penrith, which is a very long cab ride home at the end of the night. But I was lucky enough that I managed to get the day afterwards off, so I'm going to be relaxing. Several of my friends did not, because it's the lead up to end of financial year, so they are all very busy, so they will be very tired on Tuesday. Yeah, I wasn't able to make it to the, the tour that they don't come out to Canberra, funnily enough. So and either three hours to Sydney or uh, seven hours to Melbourne just wasn't going to be on the cards this time around. No, no, it's not. Although props to all my American friends who will drive three states over for a wrestling show. In Australia, it's not really possible. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, the distance is probably the same, but yeah, it's, I've done it for the odd gig here and there. I've driven 
a thousand k's each way to, to go to see a show but that's about it because though you're recently from canberra you used to live in adelaide and i know we, we've spoken a lot and you, you've been involved in sort of the adelaide local wrestling scene for quite a while right yeah i have yeah so long story short moved to canberra april this year for some family and work stuff but lived in a little old adelaide for you know the previous uh, 39 and a half years yeah have been in and around world series wrestling back when that first started in gee uh, yeah, either the very late 90s or the very early aughts. And then, you know, a few other companies that sort of sprang up towards the, the tail end of the, the 90s boom. I uh, used to do a college radio show on, on wrestling on student radio back in the day. And have been writing about the king of sports in varying online and physical media for the last five or six years. And it's something I was talking about with some friends because as you and I have talked about, I'm hugely into PWA, which is the local Sydney Federation, just because the caliber of wrestling is really strong at the moment. And also all the wrestlers are really nice and we'll, you know, stop after the show and have a chat and everything. And there's been kind of a, a real uptick in quality of local wrestling shows. I mean, the last, like you said, the last five or six mm-hmm. years. And even, like, I've been listening to some of the wrestlers on other podcasts and stuff, and they're saying that, you know, and this isn't just, like, with internationals coming in. This is, like, the actual local talent has gotten really solidified into a really good scene. Yeah. I, at I, least from my view. No, I, I yeah. definitely agree. There was definitely a whole bunch of, like, fly-by-night, uh, I guess, garbage wrestling promotions. Not to the, say, XPW uh, extent of things, but just men and women that weren't very well trained and there was a lot of focus on that sort of you know millennial wwf slash e quote-unquote hardcore style and the quality of the product wasn't great good production in terms of you know screens lighting was still a little bit out of the price range of most companies and it just it was very lo-fi shall we say you still get that occasionally i know there's a couple of local ones around here i'll see flyers where it's like oh you know a light tube match in the front of a bar and i'm like "Mm, Mm -hmm. no yeah. I'm not going to that. Yeah, Sorry, I, guys. I've seen one flyer for a Canberra promotion, which is Canberra Insane Championship Wrestling. And I saw that uh, uh, at, at, at the local corner <laughs> store. And yeah, any promotion with the word insane in its name, that's just a hard pass to me. No, like, I, I know what it's going to be. I know who's going to be there. I know the kind of show to expect. That's just not for me. Yeah, and it's funny because with PWA called Arms coming up in August... Because we were at the PWA show, we sold our souls for Rock and Robbie, where Adelaide's own Jonah Rock was there mm. and uh, picked up the PWA belt mm. in a fantastic show. And I remember like sitting there and realizing, okay, this is one of the first shows I've been to where there's no internationals on the card. It's all local people. Every match was stellar. And it was at Max Watts, with a new venue for them. Yep. And they've actually got a balcony. So a lot of the video coming out of the show was like these aerial views. And it, it looks fantastic. And whoever they've hired for their video editing is like a huge step up from before. And my friend Alex and Ree and Francis, uh, although Francis didn't make it for that show, were talking and were like, oh, Call to Arms is coming up. And we went, hang on, wasn't Call to Arms our first PWA show? And we realized we have only been going to local wrestling for a year. Wow. And it feels like 10 years. Like it feels like we've been in the scene and knowing the people for so long, which I suppose speaks to the inclusivity and kind of really the depth of the local scene. Mm. Mm. Well, the, I, the first, I guess, local guy that I became online mates with is uh, Massive Q, who doesn't work so much in Sydney, but he used to be in, in and around AWF and, and a few other bits and pieces. He was very famously in the uh, the Wrestling Fish Fingers commercial for INJ. I think it was <laughs> He was the uh, the monster heel that the babyface champ takes down in the INJ Fishfingers commercial. And, you know, from <laughs> there, got to know guys like Concrete and the, the Eagles, Robbie and Madison. And eventually that, that led to, you know, to Jonah and Tough Stuff and uh, all those other, I guess, the bright lights, the guys in, in MCW, which 
had a fair bit of crossover with Adelaide because they are relatively close. And so couldn't agree more that there's just been a good crop of talent, which is encouraged, and a, I guess a change maybe in mindset and affordability for promoters that has encouraged them to strive to compete and obviously the growth of online platforms whether that's through twitch or youtube or you know what have you means it's not just the diehards trading dvds and vhs tapes on a you know fold-up table out the front of the show anymore the product is much more accessible so i think that in itself has forced people to raise their standards in a good way yeah, and speaking of Concrete, this is Concrete Davidson, by the way, yes. listeners, co-star of Conco and the Fudge. Local 1920s strongman actually bought his comic at the most recent show. Uh, Goonie Tunes did a comic of him where he was this sort of Christian Walker from Power style eternal figure <laughs> where he was in black and white and it starts off in a black and white world and eventually he gets sad and goes to sleep for a while and wakes up in a color world and he's still black and white and he fights a bear. And I'm like, yes, I'm here for this. Yeah. This is my kind of comic book. I was saying on his Twitter the other day, it's like if you look at it, like the current scene, it's maybe 10 years and it was built on nothing. Mm. There was no coherent Australian scene that could be like, oh, well, this laid the groundwork and then we could refine it. No, everything is bootstraps. Yeah. And everything's been put together on just like grit and gumption and, you know, spit and polish. Mm. And, you know, probably a lot of duct tape. And now it's kind of gelled into this thing where, you know, the PWA training school is going great and they're turning out trainees all the time and a lot of the wrestlers are going in and helping. I mean, your current crop of head trainers is Madison Eagles and Robbie Eagles and Mick Moretti and you could do fucking worse. Mm, you could, especially in this neck of the woods, yeah, you could do a, a, a lot, lot worse. Um. Yeah, and I mean, when we went to the local show, all of the trainers were involved in matches and the idea of seeing Belle Pierce, who I'd never seen before, and seeing her in the ring with Madison Eagles and just thinking, you know, for your first kind of PWA match, being in there with Madison Eagles, that's probably the best situation for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to hurt because Madison's going to kick your ass, but still. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think the first piece I ever wrote for the Atomic Elbow was a piece about the history and I guess the boom and bust cycle of Australian wrestling going back to, I guess, the outdoor carnival attraction days in the interwar period you know in the 20s and 30s when it was very much you know that traveling carnival attraction and then there was what we might now charitably call the first golden era of australian wrestling which is when tv first took off you know in australia in the late 50s and early 60s and there was a weekly wrestling program that was taped in sydney and melbourne every week and broadcast out on channel nine because the then owner of channel nine apparently was you know quite a diehard wrestling fan and then that got kiboshed in the late 70s for a whole bunch of you know media reasons and the scene just died and uh, you know there, there was a bunch of people that were in the original version of WCW which was uh, run by Jim Burnett here in Australia and the trademark was then bought by Turner and again you know it became the WCW that most wrestling fans know but yeah the scene just died like took it out behind the shed bullet in the head dead in the late 70s and it just sort of eked along with a bunch of old timers and people that you know, had little business being in the ring, flying in the, the latest round of WWF cast-offs. I remember the first live wrestling show I ever went to was, I want to say, somewhere between 89 and 91. So it would, have been the, it would have been between the ages of about 11 and about 13. And we went to a basketball stadium, saw a show that was headlined by Barry Darso doing the uh, Demolition Cross <laughs> gimmick. I was going to say, please tell me he was Repo Man. <laughs> Sadly, no. No. Versus <laughs> Nails. Oh, 
and Ugh. Hawk from the Road Warriors was there. So maybe it was 92 after Hawk had famously disappeared from the Wembley Stadium show to uh, fall into the hellish world of underground drugs and bikers with the London chapter of the Hells Angels. Yikes. But then, oddly enough, and this may be one of those things where, you know, your memory reconstructs things in an odd way, but I have a memory of that show that was supposed to be Jushin Liger versus Chris Benoit when he was still wrestling as Holy uh, shit. A- as the Pegasus Kid. Under wow. The and Liger didn't make it for a reason, but there was another subbed guy that got a you know generic Japanese guy gimmick. He may be Japanese or not, I don't remember. Do a match in front of Chris Benoit in front of maybe, gee, you know, 600 people in a 30-year-old basketball stadium. <laughs> Then they came back and then they had, you know, just that sort of like cast off scene. So guys like Jake, you know, when he was on the outs with Vince at the times and Junkyard Dog and I don't know. So I guess that was the caliber when, you know, promoters were spending big money to fly the flotsam and jetsam of the wrestling scene halfway around the world to play at, you know, community clubs. RSLs, yeah. Yeah, that, that gives you the tone of what the Australian wrestling scene was like, really only until... Like you said, the last maybe, you know, seven to ten years. Yeah, and now it's frankly unrecognizable from that, and it's entirely on their own backs that this level of quality. And you, you know, you've got guys like Will Ospreay and Ricochet and Zack Sabre Jr. and coming in to have a shot at the Australian scene. And it's not, you're right, it's not just a cup of coffee. It's You've got people who are repeatedly coming back because... You know, the crowds are good and engaged and the work rate is fantastic. And yeah, most of the time they'll go down and spend a day, you know, training some of the locals and will come back with nothing but praise. Mm, Definitely. And, you know, you talked about Jonah and and Jonah, I think is... I love that guy. One of those guys, along with Robbie, who is just just on that cusp of being, you know, a real breakout guy uh, on the worldwide indie scene from PWG to Progress to the Australian scene. I'm sure there's stuff in New Zealand as well. Jonah was in NOAA for a while as well, yeah. Yeah, in NOAA or all those other sort of, you know, second-tier Japanese companies. There's definitely, I guess, a breakthrough pack of talent for both, you know, men and women that you just feel like we are just know, maybe a year or two years away from a revolution, you know, in, in local wrestling in this country. Yeah, and you've got, I mean, you've got the Iconics and you've got Dakota Kai and you've got these people who were trained locally who are now on the world stage. And yeah, actually, uh, just yesterday, Robbie was announced for... Fibola. PWG, for Bola, yeah, which is fucking great. He deserves it. Because mm. mm. he went for, it was a battle of San Jose, I think, uh, and had one of the best matches on the card and people were talking about him and I'm like, that's our boy. <laughs> that's your double bandana footy boy, huh? Yes, our good, good two bandana flippy boy. That's the one. Although I'm tempted to get a shirt made of that, although I am wary of making my own shirt for a local wrestler. It's like gimmick infringement. But <laughs> I might just make a design and send it to him and be like... Just, just give him the 40 bucks. Yeah. Although, actually, God, he's, he just released a new an image of his new shirt, and I definitely want to buy it. My uh, closet is filling up with local wrestling merch. <laughs> yes, I was just thinking, I definitely, there was a transition period in about maybe 2012, where it was getting rid of all the uh, the, the, the metal band t-shirts, and mm-hmm. replacing with wrestling t-shirts, and now I'm, sitting, <laughs> I'm at the crest of that wave, and I'm like, do, what do I really... Like I bought, I bought a Zack Sabre Jr. shirt and a few other bits and pieces at the WSW show we were talking about before. But I kind of feel like, especially having clocked over 40 a few months ago, I'm at that point in my life where, where my fashion choices need to be more than just licensed t-shirts and a pair of jeans. <laughs> yeah, see, I'm, I work in an office Monday to Friday, so I, I live in that corporate look. Mm. And so it's like, I have to look and be like, okay, well, this will be my weekend shirt. It's like, do I want to commit to it? It's like adding it to the t-shirt pile. But for anyone who's wondering, there's actually a new 
website for Australian merch, which is run by Unsocial Jordan, one of the members of SMS, a local team. Uh, it's called, I think it's just wrestlermerch.com.au. And it's, you know, trying to do a pro wrestling tease thing, but for, for the locals. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the designs that are up there are from a new company called Gorilla Press, which is a combined collaboration with a local tattoo artist called Goonie Tunes, who's done a couple of my friends' tattoos. And the caliber of designs has just, like, skyrocketed since that started. Caveman Ugg finally has a couple of shirts, and they're good shirts. Madison Eagles has one which is based on it, which is super creepy and awesome. Tough Stuff Ricky South, who, uh, if you know, you know, has one that's based on the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is fucking great. Mm. Yes, I can already see that in my head, and, and that will be brilliant. It's, yeah, it's so good. So, yeah, I was going to say, overseas listeners, if you've seen a couple of the shows, also, a lot of the shows are up on powerbomb.tv now, at least one at the moment, and more to come. So you can check those out. But we can't just talk about wrestling the whole time. We totally could, but we can't. Well, we could. We might at another time, but not right now. Yeah, but we're here to talk about you. So let's start with the basics. You mentioned you grew up in Adelaide. Let's start with that. I did. So Adelaide is in South Australia, which is, funnily enough, the southernmost state in Australia. It is one of the smaller capital cities of the states. Probably had a population of somewhere just under a million people when I was going up there, you know, through the 80s. So... It has a reputation for being a very old and slow and conservative city. It is the city of churches. That is its official nickname (laughs) and and it's probably well-earned. Apparently it has more churches and more pubs by square kilometer than any other city in the country. I think you'll find that those two things tend to go hand in hand, you know. A lot of praying, a lot of drinking. (laughs) A lot of praying for, uh, for absolution and varying things. So, you know, I had a very ordinary suburban childhood, I guess. Just me and my two brothers, you know, in the inner suburbs and living a pretty ordinary life. From there, I think, was trying to think about, in the lead up to this conversation, my, I guess, my first experiences with fandom and, and, and being a fan. Because I was quite passionate, even at quite a young age, about, you know, these are the things I like and these are not the things I like. I remember I would have been, I'm going to say six. And in the early 80s in Australia, there was this weird wave of, I guess, almost a zero wave of translated anime that was broadcast on ABC, which is the government-owned broadcaster and was one of the four TV channels at the time in that sort of after-school special time slot. That sort of, you know, 4 p.m. till 6 p.m. time slot. So we had Astro Boy, Kimber, Battle of the Planets, that sort of era of shows. And this particular memory is about the show Star Blazers, which is the English translation of the Battleship Yamato series. Does that mm-hmm. bring any bells to you at all? Yes, I've heard of Battleship Yamato. I didn't know that it was the same as Star Blazers, which other people talk about, and just been like, I never put two and two together. Yes, translation of, of the same animation. So we'd gone to a family friend's house, and it was the other side of town. So we lived on the north side of town, the family friends was on the south side of town, probably about an hour in the car to get home. And six-year-old Michael had a, a near meltdown tantrum about the fact that if we left when we were going to leave, I would miss Star Blazers. <laughs> and of course, this is, it's probably 1984. We were at least five years away from owning a VCR at this point in time. So, you know, if you didn't watch a thing when it was on... It was gone. It was gone. You would never get a chance to watch that thing again. So I stamped my feet and I let everybody know that I was not having any of this. And it, <laughs> and it ended up being... Me, my parents, my brother Tom, and the family that we were staying with that afternoon, or we had, you know, lunch or whatever with, and we sat down in their brown and orange 70s lounge room 
<laughs> and watch you know 22 minutes of star blazers <laughs> and it was like okay we can go now we, we can get back on the road all right thanks everybody good job you know exactly. clap your hands exactly. <laughs> see you next yep. week yep that was the beginning of of so many traits and that would define and probably do still define my life you know 30 years later <laughs> So when it comes to stuff like that, I know I've heard a lot of stories from another podcast called Sailor Business, which was that people would sit down and watch the dub of Sailor Moon after school. And depending on when they were watching, it was either a thing they did in secret or it was a thing that all their friends did as well if it was a during the boom. Mm. So did you have a lot of friends that were also watching these shows? There definitely was because, like I said, there was only four TV channels in Australia <laughs> uh, up until the mid-90s. So every kid at school, you just got home from school and you put... ABC on and it would be Sesame Street at three o'clock, play school at three forty five, and then, you know, cartoons after that. So the ones we talked about earlier and then stuff like Danger Mouse or the Goodies or so it was just the thing you talked about and played in the schoolyard the next day. So, you know, if we weren't playing Star Wars or He Man, we were playing Star Blazers or whatever, because that was just the unified cultural zeitgeist, because there was no fragmentation of media. There was nothing else to do in terms of, you know, TV or, or, or video or gaming content back then. So it, it was the thing in the schoolyard for at least two terms. And so, for those who haven't watched it, like, what was sort of the story around it? Because I know sort of vagaries around Space Battleship Miyamoto. But so what was the gist of the dub anyway? The gist, uh, and this is something I think was surprising at the time, you know, it's a, a serialized show. So unlike most kids TV shows, it wasn't every episode, you know, you hit the reset button and start again at square one the next episode. In the world of Yamato slash Star Blazers, the Earth has been rendered uninhabitable as a result of a radiation attack by an evil alien force humanity hears that there's this distant planet i think called iskandar from memory somewhere on you know the other end of space and only there will we find you know the magic and the mystery that we need to restore the earth and make it fit for human habitation and the evil alien empire is going to try and stop us from getting there so humanity comes together and they build the battleship yamato which is named after you know a very famous japanese warship during the second world war and it's basically that in space they get the best and brightest that humanity has to offer, put them on this flying battleship, and send them into space to, one, defeat the evil alien Amada, and two, hopefully finally make their way after, you know, years if not decades of travel to this lost alien secret civilization where they will find, you know, the secret to the future prosperity of humanity. See, I find it really interesting that now... I can say this as an outsider who's been here for 15 years to the point where I'd call it my home now. There was a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment in Australia until relatively recently, and you'll find still some at the moment. Mm. So I think, well, first off, I understand exactly why they didn't actually call it Space Battleship Yamato. I think there would have been a little pushback on that. But the idea of something that is so intrinsically Japanese being brought in to a country that was still very hostile to it. I think that's really interesting that it found such a foothold. I don't think you know, we knew it at the time because, you know, this mm -hmm. is still a decade before anime is a thing. You know, you have... That's true, yeah. You have Akira in sort of 86 and you have Ghost in the Shell in 92 and they're the first ones that really, you know, break that wave of, hey, you know, anime is a thing and, and it's now part of the zeitgeist because you've got you know, Pokemon in, what, 99 or something like that, 98, 99, and Dragon Ball. And it, so, you know, a decade before that, it was just a cartoon. Oh, okay. And all those cartoons, you know, unless you... Were in the know, I suppose. Yeah, unless you were savvy or unless you, you, know, you looked at the names and the production staff and went, hey, 
that's funny. You know, th those are all Japanese sounding names, or unless you know you knew an expat or what have you, you didn't put those pieces together. You know, you didn't know whether it was Astro Boy or Kim with a White Lion or Captain Future or Captain Harlock or Robotech or Star Blazers. You just you didn't know because that concept just wasn't in the culture and the lexicon for another ten years past that point. Hmm, cool. Yeah, actually, as you say that, thinking back, I mean, I watched Astro Boy and Voltron when I was very small like pre-kindergarten and as such i have only the vaguest memories of plot i actually went back and tried to watch voltron i'm like this is incomprehensible but yeah you're right i don't think you would have made that connection unless it's explicitly pointed out to you because mm, you just had no way to find out so you just mm. little white middle class kid in the suburbs and you just take things at face value and they've got cool mechs and a cool spaceship and it's a little bit star warsy uh, so yeah and so was there any kind of like follow on? Was there like a toy line that was brought over or anything? Was it, was it just this kind of odd kind of thing in the middle of the day? Not from that. And that probably wouldn't really start until Transformers and, and Voltron to a degree. But the first one where they really remember seeing the vehicles and the mech design and then seeing the toys at the local Kmart was definitely Robotech. And catching that every Saturday morning on you know the Saturday morning cartoon block and then you know getting the catalogue in the mail and waving that under my mum's nose and saying, <laughs> hey, hey, I want this one. That and Transformers were that sort of first experience of that real 80s classic the cartoon is the ad for the toy experiences. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I actually had, by accident, I had a Robotech toy mixed in with my Transformers, which was great. I just thought he was like another Jetfire. Yeah. But basically what it was is that my dad was overseas traveling and stopped at an airport and saw a bunch of toys and went, oh, that looks like a Transformer. I will buy that for my son because my son is mad for Transformers and brought it back. And I realized it changed from a vehicle to another vehicle. And I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> it was actually, um, I worked it out later. It was one of the Macross ones, but it wasn't a it wasn't the Valkyrie. It wasn't the one that everyone thought of. It was one of the smaller ones. And it turned from like a sort of a ball ship with thrusters into like a little other kind of ship. And I'm like, oh, well, you can be a drone for one of my Transformers. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely, and to me, you know, that look is still the definitive mecha look. And you know, there's obviously been iconic shows and designs since. You know, Evangelion is another one that, uh, that old Neangenesis that I'll call out. But that that design aesthetic, I guess, of those shows, whether it's Star Blazers or Robotech or, you know, I guess the Gen 1 Transformers when they were very rooted in real world. To me, this day, that, that is still what, you know, big robots punching other big robots. That is what that looks like. Yeah, and I mean, all of those just, like, I can picture it now. It's like the, the helmet with the face visor and sort of the horizontal slit for the eyes and then the two sort of earpieces with what looked like guns raked back from the head. Mm. That, to me, is just such a, a Robotech look. I mean, it's just as iconic as High Alley Stock as that one Gundam that everybody knows. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Never quite got onto that Gundam train. I think I was a little bit too old and didn't get access to it at the time, but... It's a really long train. There are so many series. <laughs> mm, my son and I have bought a couple of Gundam model kits from the local stores that we've built, but yeah, just, just never found the hours to sink into uh, to, to diving into the deep end of that one. See, I only know it from talking to Ali or occasionally Dr. Destructo of the greatest podcast in the history of our sport will make jokes about some of the Gundam series stuff like my hand glows with an awesome power, usually to make jokes about the coal miners glove match. But <laughs> really, it's like something where it's I'm just like tangential to this thing on a parallel track and looking over and going, ah, oh, that's certainly a thing that happened. But you mentioned building the model kits with your son. Have you tried showing your son any of the Star Blazers stuff or any Robotech of that era? And has he liked it or not? I have. You mentioned this in the episode that you put up this week about where's that balance between, hey kids, 
I like a thing, you might like a thing. And hey, kids, I like a thing, you must like this thing. <laughs> That's the worry, right? And especially with you know older animation, it's just not even in the same league as contemporary animation. So the production quality, where it's recycled stock footage, where characters are mispainted or you know they've dubbed the wrong dialogue to the wrong character, almost in every episode. It's a real hard sell to say, son, here's 75 episodes of Robotech. There is a story you can follow from scene one, minute one, episode one, to scene 10, you know, of the final episode. Trust me, it gets good. (laughs) To sell that to, you know, a nine-year-old boy who's got every episode of Pokemon, every episode of Power Rangers, you know, and a whole bunch of other stuff just sitting there in his Netflix catalog, like it's not the easiest sell in the world yeah and it's one of those things where like you said you don't want to be the person pushing i I just realized i just clicked with something you know what it is you know when you were a kid and you would be reading whatever books that you liked and they were the the good books you know be it goosebumps or animorphs or hardy boys or whatever it is that was the thing for you and then your parents would try and slip in like a classic and be like here you can read this one Mm. And then occasionally it would work, and that's how I ended up reading White Fang at the age of 10. <laughs> and occasionally it didn't, because occasionally you'd like hit it, and you'd hit a piece, and you'd kind of bump with it, and go, like, this is not this is not good. That's the equivalent of what we're doing, but we're doing it with TV. Yeah, it was very much, that was the way it was with comedy series and music, especially with my dad growing up. I remember watching the Pink Panther movies and The Young Ones and, and Monty Python when I was 9 or 10 and, you know, appreciating the ultraviolet slapstick and not much else. The music as well. I remember, like, going through my dad's collection of LPs and finding a bit of Frank Zappa, a bit of Beatles, a bit of Jimi Hendrix, but, oh, hey, here's Abba's Arrival. Or, <laughs> you know, my dad was very good at just, oh, I'll just, just leave this out here and then, you know, if you find it, you find it. But there was definitely a few things like had to watch all the Marx Brothers movies, had to watch a whole bunch of classic Three Stooges where there was definitely that expectation of you will enjoy this in the same way that I enjoy this. Yeah, and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And it's like, although I, it's funny, like I have come around to some of that stuff. Like uh, my dad was obsessed with like the Rockford Files and Columbo and all of those kind of mid-70s to early 80s kind of detective shows. And for a while like in the maybe late 90s, they would show them in a block on A&E and he would just like park himself in front of the TV and try and get me to come in. And I would just be, oh no, dad, I'm too cool for that. <laughs> now I listen on the regular to just one more thing, which is a Columbo podcast that goes episode by episode. And it's really good. Even things like Murder, She Wrote. You know, you had a parent going, oh, this is good. You should sit down and watch it. And like, oh no, I'm far too cool for that. Whereas I have seen more Twitter discourse on Murder, She Wrote than any of the cool shows at the time. Whether it's that or from an older sibling, you know, the Twin Peaks experience is definitely one of those landmark things. If you were a, you know, a hashtag 90s kid like myself, there was definitely, you know, the people that saw that in the first run and then the mythology that built around that and whether that was from a family member or a friend or people you met at high school, university or whatever, that was definitely one of those problematic experiences of, you know, an elite level of fandom that, you know, quote Mm. unquote knew what was going on and would hold that over your head. Got a bit gatekeepy, didn't it? Yes, thank you. That was exactly what I was looking for and I could not find it because my fingers are still blue. (laughs) But yes, that is exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah, and and I definitely think there is a difference because the thing is, I just watched the first season of Twin Peaks like this past 12 months and it's very good. It's also very of the time. Mm. And the hair of nothing else. (laughs) But it does benefit from the fact that, you know, 
the where it takes place and some of the people that are involved are kind of things out of time, as I'm sure Andrew Isla will tell me. But I think there's a difference to seeing something that's an important series, seeing it in the wild without the preconception that, oh, this is a great thing. You should sit down and pay attention to every minute of it versus, like you said, someone telling you this is a landmark series. This is important. You sit down and give this the time. And yeah, I wonder if perceptions of each would change if it was just like, oh, this is Twin Peaks, a show I watch sometimes, versus this is Twin Peaks with capital T and capital P. You must sit down and give this fantastic Lynchian puzzle box all of your attention. I think there would be, if only because, especially, you know, when you're an adult and doubly so when you're a parent, your free time is very finite. Oh, yes. I am giving up my one free hour a day to do this thing. You set the bar at a certain level. Like, this must deliver a certain return on investment. Otherwise, I could have been doing something else. And so, obviously, when you're a kid, it's very different. You know, you have summers that last forever and you could just go to the library or the video store or browse a catalogue and consume things at random. But especially with more responsibilities in your life, it's a different way of engaging with something that you haven't had before. Or even finding the time to, you know, to go back and revisit something and critically reassess whether it stands up to the light of day. Like, to get back to, you know, the Robotech thing, I remember buying that on DVD in probably the early 2000s when, you know, owning things on DVD was just the thing that everyone was doing. You had to have that shelf so that someone walked into your house and knew what kind of person you were. Exactly, exactly. And it was reasonably well packaged. It wasn't one of those, okay, you know, special features are DVD menu. <laughs> yeah, animated menu. Exactly. <laughs> the Robotech DVDs had back matter and contemporary interviews and historical interviews, stuff like that. But still, you know, they broke down a 70-odd episode TV series into 12 DVDs in like five box sets. So it was still a big big cost sink. Uh, And, you know, you go back and you crack it open, you look back and you watch it. And definitely there is some diamonds in the dust there with that show. Once you get behind the quality of animation, the fact that even though it is ostensibly a alien invasion story... There is a strong anti-war narrative that runs through large parts of the show. It has surprising for its time representation for female characters in positions of power in the military, which you just didn't see at the time and, and still don't really now. The way it incorporated music and that serialized storyline in that cartoon TV commercial era, I think is the power and legacy of that show. Yeah, totally. All right, so looking back on the dubbed anime of your time, and you talked about revisiting them a little bit, if you were to recommend one series that you think would be accessible to a new viewer, but also kind of hold the best of what was around then, mm. what series would it be and why would that be? Hand on heart, without even a second thought, it has to be those early Studio Ghibli movies. Movies like The Castle of Cagliostro, Porco Rosso, Totoro, of course, you know, <laughs> that movie is a must-watch for anyone, but... I remember there was a period in my life, in my early teens, where every Saturday night on SBS, which was the fifth television channel in Australia, there was a cult movie slot. There was this, this guy who was the you know crazy, wacky guy around the office, and he would introduce a cult movie every week. And some weeks that would be Jackie Chan, some weeks that would be Eastern European horror movies, but at least once a month, you know, you would get a classic 80s, 90s anime. And that was how I first got introduced to all those wonderful early Studio Ghibli films and despite the technical limitations of what they could do with the animation what they could do with the sound and the scoring you know the commitment to character and heart and sincerity and action and non-traditional stories that is the core of what makes Ghibli the amazing paragon of storytelling that it is and all ages storytelling that it is 
he's undeniable. Yeah, my girlfriend's sister has immediately put all of the Studio Ghibli movies into her kids' rotation, and they've all just accepted them, and, you know, they have the Nikonobasu on their bed, <laughs> which is great. We have deep plans for that to happen, but also it's like, I... Because, again, it was one of those things that was never in the rotation for me. Uh, and my friend Annie, they brought over uh, the Castle of Cagliostro at a six-pack, and we ordered pizza and watched it. And I was just like, this is amazing. And also, uh, he kind of breaks physics in that movie. <laughs> but there's no kind of in that statement between that car chase and that roof running sequence. It was the yeah, the roof running where yeah. it's like she's falling and he runs down the side of a building, jumps off, catches her in midair and they hit with a thunderclap on the water yep. and they're both okay and yes. I have spat my beer out. What what the There's shingles flying everywhere and he's still got time to check his hair and light a cigarette and look cool at the end because oh, fuck. he is Lupin, king of all gentlemen films. He's Lupin, he does that shit. Yep. <laughs> He managed to roll a 20 on several checks in that particular action. <laughs> he did, he did. To find, I mean, there was never a bad time to find that movie. There is never a bad time to revisit that movie because even those set pieces, just watch YouTube clips of them. They are so full of joy and sincerity and not tomfoolery, but you know, the, I guess that, that kind-hearted scoundrel with a heart of gold, which is at the heart of the Lupin character. It's uh, it's a real, real heartwarming all the feels film, as the kids would say. Yeah, and it's like, looking at the sort of the animation, it may seem a little dated at first glance, but yeah, you're right, there's a real heart to it. Mm. And you kind of forget that after a few scenes, and instead you're just, you're watching a movie, because it is well-constructed and funny, and so much thought has gone into it at no point, because like, there's this bad idea that animation should be something that is casual, that is something that's that is just churned out for the masses. And especially when you get something that is so deliberate as a Ghibli movie or as or so even something like Evangelion, for all they did, you know, may not have known what they were doing from show to show. And there's a lot of throwing a lot of balls in the air and hoping something lands. Yeah. And I'm not even going to talk about End of Evangelion because we don't have another hour. But, <laughs> but yes, something like The Castle of Cagliostro, it's like you can pretty much take it as a unit. And whether you bring in any kind of history to it of, oh, yes, you know, this was Miyazaki's movie before there was a Studio Ghibli. And this was sort of the seed of things to come. You can just take it as it is. And it's still a good thing. Yeah, and you look at Totoro, it's a movie that has no conflict, doesn't really have a plot. <laughs> like it's an episode in the life of two young girls and their dad living at the edge of a strange and mysterious forest because they have to be near the hospital where their mother has some sort of vague, non-specified, life-threatening illness. And to think about, even if that came out today, because, you know, blockbuster family animation is such a defined and hard box of a movie must look like this. There must be a Hotel Transylvania, a Minions, a... <laughs> uh, whatever like whatever i'll take my kids to see in school holidays in two weeks and to have a movie like totoro that has those qualities and the heart of it is just about the relationship between siblings the relationship between man and nature fear of losing your parents you know what will i do when my parents aren't around anymore in this canvas of, of magical realism and folklore i guess there is almost no other movie like it if it is not itself unique which i kind of feel like it probably is Absolutely. And I mean, and also so many iconic images and like, I'm just picturing them sitting in the rain mm. uh, <laughs> with the umbrella or, or even just like, like much in the same way as you can spot the Love Island watcher in your office when you refer to someone as Jackson with an X and watch <laughs> which head pops up. 
you can hum the song from Totoro there. And you will see who tweaks to it. And that's how you know where your people are. Yes. My son recently discovered like a 10-hour YouTube mix of all the Studio Ghibli piano <laughs> concertos or piano pieces. Yeah. Uh, and that is now my standard, I am angry at work, I need to take an edge off thing mix. Dial it up on YouTube, put my headphones in, and that's how mm-hmm. I get through the, uh, you know, the white collar office rage of the day. Just listening to the, the piano <laughs> themes to, <laughs> to that, to a spirited away. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. it's magic. There's recently been, I mean, for all we just said that you know DVD owning is a thing of the past. There have been some really um, beautiful Blu-ray remasters going back to the original film stock that have come out recently. Uh, so yeah, definitely worth picking up if you can. All right, Michael. So we're pretty much out of time. So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? Well, there's two places. First of all, you can head to Advanced Comics, which is my independent and Australian comic review site. And that is either at advanced underscore comics on Twitter or advancedcomics.wordpress.com. Look up the Atomic Elbow on Twitter. I don't maintain the Twitter account, but you'll find the link to our store there. That's at Atomic underscore Elbow on Twitter or me personally at Frankiemon on Twitter, F-R-A-N-K-I-E-M-O-N. Yeah, and Michael is a quality follow. He opines on many subjects. (laughs) You're too kind. (laughs) <laughs> All right, Michael, thanks so much. This has been great. Thanks, Lucas. Hope we'll do it again, and we will catch up on that Evangelion conversation one day. <laughs> and you will explain the ending to me, because I've seen it four times, and I haven't. It's so stupid, it makes no fucking sense. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much to Michael Francis for his time. For Michael's signature cocktail, he specifically asked for a drink with strong robust flavors from big, bold, strong red wines or dark beers or dark rums. But he's not a fan of whiskey, be it smoky or heavily peated at all. And he's not much of a bourbon guy because of a terrible teenage experience with Jim Bean. I'd say that experience is pretty common. Anyway, don't worry Michael, I've got you covered. And in honor of Michael's new Canberra location and his sub-zero temperatures, I present the Woden Valley Warmer. In an old-fashioned glass full of ice, combine one and a half ounces of dark rum, one and a half ounces of Pedro Jimenez sherry, a quarter ounce of honey syrup, a dash of chocolate bitters, and a twist of lemon peel. Stir quickly to combine, and if necessary, top up with fresh ice. Searching for a distant star, heading off to Iskandar, leaving all we love behind, who knows what drinks we will find. Enjoy!
The View is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofview at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofview, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want. You could drop a fat stack, which, let's be honest, this week I would probably spend on more cough medicine. Patrons get bonus cocktail recipes, physical mail, and I would really appreciate it just a whole bunch. If you would like to support non-monetarily, you can go to iTunes in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. Or you could leave a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used, going all the way back to episode one. Including this song. It's the name of life, from Spirited Away, as interpreted by Japanese violinist and composer Tsumuzi. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe to get the new music in your ears. Next week, I'll be talking to Stephen Gauntlet about classic video games. Join me, won't you? <laughs>